So what I want to do in this study is, is take us on a journey. Uh, I want to I elevate our faith. I want to elevate our spiritual eyes. And um, again, it is our theme this year, Raised with Christ. And we do want to make sure we, we talk about this because it's so vital for us to have a heart and have a mind, uh, a purpose that's set on eternity with our Lord. Colossians chapter 3 is that text that we see. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And listen to the next charge. Set your mind, your minds on things that are above. And listen to the negative charge. Not on things that are on the earth. Why? Why is it so important if we've been raised with Christ to seek things that are above where Christ is? Why is it so important for us to set our mind, our thoughts, our cares, our affection on heavenly things, not on earthly things? Why? He says, because you have died. When you gave your life to Christ, you were crucified with Christ, but Christ is alive in you. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God so when Christ, who is our life, appears, listen to the next promise, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, the next study that we're jumping into is the, the, the study of the end or the end times. A study to help us keep our mind on things above. A study of the end of the age. We live in a time where our minds are consumed with temporal things. I, I don't think that there's a person in here that's honest that wouldn't say, I struggle with keeping my mind on heavenly things. Every day, I've, I've got appointments, I've got schedules, I've got deadlines, I've got, I've got to punch in here, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to get the kids here, I've got to get my mind, get so consumed with earthly things, it's difficult to keep my mind on eternal things. But the more maybe condemning thing, the saddening thing for us as Christians is this. Our culture has found a way, the enemy has found a way to use our culture to have more influence in our lives than the Word of God does. It's permeated the church and the ranks of the church. There's statistics, recent studies that prove it. I'm so thankful for Brother Jeffrey. The last two weeks he's preached about being anchored in the truth and and it's so vital for our young people to hear that. But listen, parents, grandparents, if it's not real to you, it doesn't matter how hard he preaches. It doesn't matter how hard I preach. It doesn't matter. If it's not real to you and you're not living it out, living it out at home, and as just as he read, we've read it in here, he read it again recently in Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're not teaching it to your kids diligently, if you're not living it out, if it's not real to you, don't be surprised when it's not real to them. Recently, a couple weeks ago, went to the Texas State BBF meeting. It was hosted here in Fort Worth at Legacy Baptist Church down the street. And there was a minister, a retired minister. He travels around and speaks, and he was sharing some information on this study I've talked about, about a biblical worldview. And this morning, I'm going to share some of that informa information because in this study that we're, we're getting into, it's going to be very pertinent. I, I want to look at probably three different types of things throughout this study about the end times. 
We're going to look at some foundational things, or the first things. We're going to build the foundation of the study of the end to, to, to best give us an understanding what we should know and how we should react to what we know about the end times. The second thing I want to make sure we understand are the fundamental truths about the end times. And then my prayer is that as a church, we would grasp the future hope that's contained in the scriptures about the end times. Matthew chapter 24 is the very first text we're going to look at to help us understand some of the foundational things we need to understand. It says Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to, the point, uh, to, came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And you have to understand, this temple, this Rhodian temple, was a magnificent temple. It was something to be admired, uh, greater than Solomon's temple. This is something... Uh, an amazing thing he said to them do you not see all these things truly i say to you not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down this this was again blowing their minds jesus was trying to tell them something about his kingdom and about what he was going to do they were held captive by this even though it pointed to god and even though it represented their time in worship and fellowship with god it was still a building that would point to Jesus Christ. That's what the whole temple, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was all to point to the communion, the fellowship that we have in Jesus Christ. And he was right there with them. He was walking among them. He was God incarnate. He, 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 he was everything that all of the law and the prophets pointed to. And they were, more, they were admiring the physical building of the temple when they had Jesus himself there. And Jesus blew their mind and he says, look at all of this. I promise you this, there's not one stone here that will be left upon another that will not be torn down. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. And listen to what their request was. They, they, their, their mind was blown, they were captivated by what was being said and taught. So they said, tell us then, what will, when, when will these things happen? And even beyond that, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So here he sits on the Mount of Olives, the hill that's directly opposite of the temple. It's across the Kidron Valley. Some of them in our church have, have been there. I, I was looking for the picture that I took when, when, when we were there in 2015. But this spot on, on the Mount of Olives gives the, the best panoramic view of Jerusalem. It's, it's captivating. At the base of this mountain is Gethsemane. And there is where they ask him on the Mount of Olives, what is going to be the sign of your coming? See, the disciples thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so when he talks about the destruction of the temple, it didn't fit their eschatological scheme that they envisioned. So they asked him for clarification. You've got to give us some more information about what you're talking about. And more importantly, when are you going to do all this? When are you going to come back? So Jesus addressed their question, actually in reverse order, describing the prophetic sign of his coming, and then the series of signs, verses 4 through 35 that we'll eventually get to. But then he addressed their coming about the timing of these events in verse 36. When they asked of his coming, which is the Greek word parousia, which means presence, when, when he would be present again. 
They didn't envision a second coming in the far off future. They really thought that they would see the Messiah return in their lifetime, these disciples did. Even if they were aware, conscious of his approaching death, which he had plainly told them was going to happen on several occasions. There was no way they were anticipating his ascension to heaven in this long intervening church period that has been ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ. When Jesus used the term parousia in this discourse, when he said, he talked about his presence, his second presence, he used it in the technical sense. Again, to a future time that he would return to the earth. So as Jesus was asked about specifically the destruction of this physical temple, and about the end of the age, these Jewish believers, which by the way, were the foundation of the church, we already saw that, didn't understand about the age of the Gentiles. They had no idea that there was going to be 2,000 years and maybe more of the gospel reaching to every Gentile nation. And Luke, we see that he tells them this in chapter 21, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter in. Uh, enter it. For these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in, the, in those days. For, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus, again, would in this Olivet Discourse give them, and in turn give us, keys, indicators, and instructions about the end. Why is this important to understand the times that we're living in? Why, why is it so vital? Again, there, there have been books and movies and people talk about it. We've, we've done group studies in, in, in our church. Why, why is this such a captivating thought about the end times? So I think similar to the reason why some people just can't wait. They buy a new book and then flip to the end and find out what happens and then read the book. That's why some people skip the book altogether and get cliff notes. Get the summary, good, I'm good to go. But I want you to look at Matthew chapter 24 again, verse 42. Therefore, be on alert, he says. And we didn't cover all of the things that he said. Again, we'll get to that at some point in time. But why is this so important for us to understand? Because he told them then, 2,000 years ago, to be on alert. He said, because you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert, and he would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
Truly, I, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his own heart, my master's not coming for a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, live like a lost person because he is a lost person. Then the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know. We're told not just here by Jesus to stay on alert, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to the Thessalonian believers there in Thessalonica, Paul had to calm them down. He had to tell them, look, you, you guys aren't ignorant about this. Don't be, don't be afraid. I've already talked to you about this. But he said this, now in the times of the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you because you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Why did they know that? Because that was the doctrine of Jesus that had been taught. They knew what had already been taught about the end times. So he says, you already know this full well, that this is how he's going to return. While they're saying in their life, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But I want you to look at what he says in the next verse. But you, brethren, you who are truly Christians, you Christians are not in darkness that the day of the Lord would overtake you like a thief. Which is interesting because Jesus is talking to his disciples privately and then we know that according, we'll eventually get to Revelation, we know that he, he writes to churches who are entertaining certain people in their church who are not a part of the church of Jesus Christ. They attend there, they show up there, but they are obviously not in line with the gospel. They have not believed the gospel unto salvation. We know that that was the case even in, in, in the churches that Paul wrote to. There were people that he called out. There were people that had crept in to Timothy who wrote. There's people that have come in and they're leading women astray. And this is vital for us to do. I, I want to tell you, church, please hear this. We are not just strolling. I don't believe we're just casually strolling to the return of Christ. I believe that we are running, sprinting to the return of Christ. How, how do we know? And why is it all so important? Why? How could this spark revival in our, in our life, in our church? I want you to notice the contrast as we look at the foundational things this morning. The first point is this, the condition in the beginning. I want to contrast what it was and what it is. Genesis chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, God is, uh, has God said, he questioned the word of God, you should not eat from any tree in the garden. Didn't God say that? Didn't he promise you all the blessings that he, he created for you? But the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it, or even touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God just made you. God gave you all this stuff, and you, could, you touch the fruit, you eat the fruit, you die. You're not going to die. Here's the truth, which was a lie. God knows that on the day that you eat from it, that your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman 
then in this temptation looks at the tree, begins to reason and begins to question what God had already commanded, the word, the truth that God had already spoke. She saw that the tree was actually good looking. And that, that, I've never tasted fruit like that. That fruit looks really good. And why would God withhold that from us? Is it, is it a test? Does he really want us to partake of the fruit that he commanded us not to partake of? Does God want us to actually do something he told us not to do so that we unlock maybe some amazing experience in the garden? It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from the fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So they did what most people do. They tried to cover it up. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. But they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Man, I'm telling you what, I hear that, I read that, and I think, I cannot wait for that. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Some of you wonder why I get so upset about summer here. You see what the garden was like? It was cool in the day. But man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God wasn't wondering where Adam was. God knew exactly where Adam was. God knew exactly what Adam and Eve had done. That He knew all these things, but God wasn't asking them for his own knowledge. He was asking them for their accountability. That's the same exact way our relationship with the Lord works today. It's not that God is wondering what we would pray. It's not God, it's not God saying, well, um, if you would just do that. No, God was wanting the interaction. God already knows the interaction that we have with him is for our benefit. He's perfect in all his ways. He asked them for them. What was the reply? I, I heard uh, the sound of you in the garden. I want to hear what that sound sounds like. Because, again, you hear what it says? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And that's what they said. We, we heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Adam, you know, like, like we do, busting his own chops, ratting him own self, his own self out. God said, who told you you were naked? I've never used that word with you before. I've never told you anything. How did you know you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I've commanded you not to eat? Again, God knew that. This is for Adam's accountability. The man said, well, <laughs> the woman. The woman who you gave to me, she's the one that cooked it up and, and fed it to me. She made the meal around here that night, and that's what she gave me, God, okay? I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, 
I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Can I get an amen, ladies? In pain, you'll bring forth children. Don't you, ladies, don't you wish you knew what it was like to have a child without pain? That would be amazing, right? Hey, what are you doing? Ah, I'm just going to go have the kid. Oh, okay. See you in a few minutes. In pain you'll bring forth your children, yet your desire will be for your husband. That means that the woman will desire to have the place of the husband. The woman, the woman will want to lead the home. The woman will, will want to have the say. The woman will struggle with submitting to the leadership of her husband. That's why there's commands in the Bible for that to happen. He said this is part of the curse, that you're going to want to be the leader, but that's not God's order. He'll rule over you. He'll be the lead. He'll be the leader of the home. Then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. It was a very clear command. Then cursed is the ground because of you. You want to know why there's stickers? Adam. <clears throat> In toil, you'll eat of it. All the days of your life, in toil, he said, you'll have to work and labor for your food. By the sweat of your brow, that's what you're both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you, I told you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will experience death because of this. Man's eyes... We, we, we read a story like this in Genesis, and, and, and I, I, go, go with me on this, right? Think about what they just did. Think about the offense that they just committed. Think about the, the, the sin that they committed. They were in the garden. They were naked. They didn't even know it. It was perfect. There was everything they could ever want in the garden. They were there. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And all they did was simply eat fruit that they weren't supposed to. It seems like in our human reasoning, well, that's such a, that's such a harmless offense that they just disobeyed God one little time and it was just a small little command and it was just a piece of fruit. All just that little thing caused this big of a problem. I want you to see how big of a problem it is to God even one little disobedience. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came in through the world through one man, just this little offense started a snowball that we'll, we'll see in just a second. It wasn't just sin that was entered in. It wasn't just the fact that man knew at this point in time that he was naked and that he had offended God's word, God's command, but death was accompanying sin. You cannot have, you cannot have sin without death and vice versa. They are, they are married together. They're, death is the consequence of sin. It's the wage of sin. So death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of what in our minds is just a little tiny disobedience and a little bite of a fruit. 
We know there's some people that would criticize God and have criticized God for putting a tree in the garden that they couldn't eat. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought, well, wait a second. If God is, if God is so loving and God didn't want them to sin, that's, he, he doesn't want us to sin. God is perfect and holy. He doesn't want any of his children to sin. Why would God put a tree in the middle of a garden and say, don't eat it? Just don't put it there, right? In our minds, that's the way it works. Don't even put the tree. Don't even put the temptation there. Don't even, uh, don't even put them through the process of having to walk by that tree every day. And be like, hmm, you know. They, why did God do that? God can't be good. God must have wanted them to sin. But I want you to know that him putting that tree in the middle of that garden was a display of amazing grace and amazing love. You say, how? See, man had the capacity in a righteous, in, in, a, in a good state. The Bible says that he created everything and he called it good. It was right, it was perfect, it was whole, it was without sin, it was righteous. He, he gave man the capacity in that state to choose him or reject him. God, in his grace and his love, therefore, gave them a clear sign and a clear command. The sign was the tree. It showed them in his grace that evil exists. He didn't have to tell them that. He didn't have to warn them of that. He didn't have to give them the, 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 the heads up, if you will, that, that there's an enemy out there lurking, trying to pull them away from his goodness and his grace and his, and, and his righteousness. He, he, he could have just let them out there alone and, and not given them any help in the midst of what they would find out was a very powerful and formidable enemy. So he gave them the tree as a sign. See, Satan had already rebelled. And again, this was amazing grace, the fact that he... He put a tree out there and, and, and showed them, hey, evil exists. You don't know what it is right now. You don't ever have to know what it is. You can stay perfect in perfect fellowship with me all the days of your life. But I want to tell you in my grace that evil's out there. So he puts a tree. And he gives them a command, which is his love. Don't eat that fruit. Because the day that you do, you'll know exactly what evil is. And that's to disobey me. That's to sin, to transgress. Again, the reason this would occur is because, again, sin. Breaking God's command. 1 John chapter 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's law. Death results because God is life. And God is sinless. And the one who sins, breaks his law, breaks his command, is separated from God, therefore separated from life. Romans chapter 6, I mentioned it a while ago, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what started as one choice of Adam in the beginning to offend God's command, as I said, it started a snowball. What, what started as just the, the, the people of God, Adam and Eve, in perfect fellowship with God and, and choosing to disobey his word and introducing sin in what may be the most seemingly harmless situation of sin 
harmless sin. Snowballs to what we see today, which is point two. Consummated as the crisis at the end. It started with Adam's choice to offend God's command. And it's consummated by the crisis at the end. 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is where Paul is warning Timothy about what it's going to look like in the end. We saw in the beginning they were sinless, they were perfect. They, they, they had not known what sin or death or, or, or child pain, uh, childbearing pain or birthing pain, whatever. They had, they had no idea what that was. They had no idea what it was to step on a, a sticker or a thistle or work and have to earn your, your keep. And, and to do that, they just went out there and picked the fruit and enjoyed fellowship with God and kept the garden. And, and, and it was amazing. The crisis at the end tells us to understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, times of danger, perilous times, where people will be lovers of self. We don't see that today, do we? Lovers of money. We don't see people voting just because of money or living because of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless. I've mentioned that recently. It's amazing that you can see young people videoing and laughing at somebody else getting beat to death and then posting it on social media, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, gossips, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, Traitors, reckless, swollen with con conceit. And I want you to listen to this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, they, they, they play the part, they say the part, but they actually don't live it. They deny its power. And look at the charge. You need to avoid such people. Because it's from these, this group of people who creep in into houses and they capture weak women burdened with sin and, and led astray with various passions. They're always learning. They have a lot of knowledge of the Bible that they actually never, they're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, it's the same way that these men opposed the truth in the end times. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified disqualified regarding the faith but they will not get very far because their folly will be plain to all it'll be posted on the meet on, on social media it'll be posted on the news outlets it'll be seen clearly by the true people of god as was that of those two men as i mentioned the culture has so influenced the mindset the culture today that we live in has so influenced the mindset that we are facing it's, it, what we're facing is not merely political. The problem, the crisis, is not just a political crisis. By the way, side note, this is free, there's papers on that back table about the upcoming election. And you as a child of God have a responsibility to, to, to make sure that you live and represent the kingdom of God. And in this nation, we have an amazing privilege to be able to vote. And as a child of God, you should represent his kingdom in your vote. 
I'm not telling you how to vote other than you're a Christian and you should vote according to the standards of the kingdom of God. That's our charge. To live, to do, to act like that. There's papers back there that have to do with faith values. There's some major offices on there. It's not every office. And they tell you on some of the issues that are the major issues. Grab one of those papers before you leave if you haven't already voted. Um, but we, the crisis that we're facing is not merely political. It's not just a financial crisis that we're dealing with. And it's not even a moral crisis only that we're facing as a country. We are well beyond crisis spiritually. I want you to hear that again. We are well beyond a spiritual crisis in this nation. In that BBF meeting, the gentleman that shared some of this info was from a study from the Cultural Research Center. It says that the nationwide study uh, survey of American Christian pastors, pastors, hear that again? Pastors. Shows that the majority of pastors in America lack a biblical worldview. In fact, just slightly more than a third, 37% of pastors possess a biblical worldview. And the majority of pastors in America possess, that's 62%, a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. These shocking findings are part of the American Worldview Inventory of 2022. It's conducted, again, by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University and ministered to Christian pastors to better understand the worldviews that drive their thinking and behavior. Veteran researcher George Barna explains it's further evidence that, I want you to look on this, on the board, the culture is influencing the America church. It's evidence that the culture is influencing the American church much more than the Christian churches are influencing the culture. According to the latest report, the level of biblical worldview varies by the pastoral position held. So there are different levels of percentages of worldviews based on the pastoral position. For example, among senior pastors, 41% hold a biblical worldview. I want you to hear that again. Senior pastors who are leading churches in America, 41% Hold a biblical worldview. What is a worldview? It's the lens, it's the filter in which we see the world. It's how we approach issues in the world. The highest incidence among any of the five pastoral positions studied was of senior pastors, again, which was only 41%, not even 50% of Christian pastors in America have a biblical worldview, a clear biblical worldview. The next highest was amongst associate pastors at 28%. One of the more concerning revelations emerging from the research is the worldview of pastors who work with young people. Why am I so thankful for Brother Jeffrey, who is our student pastor and an elder in this church, who week after week is going to preach the truth and preach the truth whether our young people like what he's saying or not? Why am I so thankful for that? Because listen, the study found that only 12% of children's and youth pastors hold a biblical worldview. 12%. You can talk to him. I encourage you to talk to him. 
and have a conversation with him about what he hears about other churches, even in this area, what they do with their youth. It was happening even when we were teens. There are sometimes youth departments, all they want to do is entertain their kids so their kids will want to come back so that they can save their fe so their fellow youth pastors. We have 100 kids in our youth department. They don't teach them the truth. They're entertaining them. Among teaching pastors, the level of biblical worldview is a mere 13%. The men who are taking the pulpit in teaching, not just the senior pastors because some churches are aligned like that, getting in the pulpit and teaching from a worldview that's not absolute biblical. He says this, a person's worldview primarily develops, I want you to hear this, before the age of 13. You want to know why what he was preaching last week was so important? Because your kids are being influenced right now to either have a biblical worldview when they leave or not. It's not just because you bring them to church. Amen. You should do that. We'll get into that at some other time. There should be no compromise in that. The, the Christian church, I, I can only imagine not just the heartbreak of the Lord Jesus Christ who bled and died for this church, for his church. Not only the heartache, but the, 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 uh, maybe the, the, the humorous, the, the, the humor in it. When we say to him, but God, we didn't go to church to gather with your people to worship you, worship you, the only one true God. We didn't go on that day because we had something in the world to do. We had something more important on that day that the church of Jesus Christ has set aside to gather and to worship the King of Kings. We had something else to do. And some people say, well, Brother Kyle, you just... You're not compassionate. The, the schools, they, they schedule these things. And the, and the clubs, they do these things. You know what? It's not about compassion. It's about where our heart is. And we wonder why the culture has more influence in the church. Because the church has led it. The church has said, look, the world's doing this. Okay, we've got to do this then. I mean, you, don't you want my kid to, to get their diploma? I'm going to stop there. Their biblical worldview is develops before the age uh, before the age of thirteen. Then it goes through a period of refinement. I want you to hear this through their teens and even into their twenties. Therefore, from a worldview development perspective, a church's most important ministers are the children's pastors and youth pastor. I'm so thankful for a youth pastor, and I'm so thankful for our children's directors who week after week teach the Bible. Sacrificing, laboring to teach. Discovering that seven out of every eight of those pastors lack a biblical worldview helps to explain. Did you hear that? Seven out of eight of those pastors lack a biblical worldview helps explain to uh, to helps to explain why so few among the nation's youngest generations are developing a heart and a mind for biblical principles and biblical ways of life why are our kids not wanting to go the way of god why do they stop why do they why are they not as interested in the things of god well number one if they're not saved they're at, they're still at hostility with god if they are a, a christian young person 
then they're in that time of their biblical worldview molding. And when mom and dad say, we don't have to go to church, we don't have to serve the Lord, we don't have to worship him, we don't have to tell people about Jesus, you know what the kid learns? There are things in the culture more important than Jesus. No matter how you spin it, no matter how much grace, false grace, you try to pour on that, you are damaging your spiritual, your kid's spiritual worldview, their biblical worldview. You're telling them there is something more valuable in this world than Jesus Christ. So you don't have to go to church to prove that Jesus, what does it prove to them then? We wonder why we are in the position we are in. And, and the older generations are wondering what's happening. And the, and, and the parents are struggling with keeping their kids involved in, in, in spiritual things. Why? What's the problem? Well, one of the major problems in our nation is the pastors don't even have a biblical worldview. And so people who go to a church who, preaches, who preach the Bible but have friends with people who go to churches who don't have the same convictions and don't preach the same things, the same truth. They have those conversations, they read those articles, they listen to those YouTube clips, and they say things like this. Well, it's not a big deal if you don't do this for the Lord, or if you, don't, if you miss just that. It's not a real big deal. How do we get here? also helps explain why our society seems to have run wild over the last decade. The latest research, they say, shows this stunning erosion of biblical understanding is present even among the leaders of the church. We need a comprehensive strategy to rebuild biblical worldview into every generation and every part of life. The, this, the, the, the latest report found that the prevailing worldview among pastors, as I said earlier, was syncretism. You say, what is syncretism? It's on the board. It's the blending of ideas and applications from a variety of holistic worldviews into a unique but inconsistent combination that represents their personal preferences. Isn't that confusing? That's exactly where they stand. Well, do you, what do you, how do you feel about abortion? Well, you know, just to kind of, you know, how, how do you feel about homosexuality? Well, God tells us to love, and so it's just, a, you know, kind of, it's a great, no, no, that's syncretism. That's blending all of these different ideas to form something when God is clear in his word on these things. More than six out of every ten pastors, 62%, hold this synchristic view. This trend is also being seen more widely in American culture with almost nine out of ten U.S. adults, 88%, embracing syncretism as their primary worldview, according to a report from last year's study of competing worldviews. According to the latest re uh, release, pastors have a biblical worldview in only one of eight worldview categories measured. Overall, 57% of all pastors think and act consistently in consistently biblical ways regarding the purpose of life and their calling. That's it. The, regarding the purpose of life and their calling, they have a worldview, 57%. Leading the way in biblical understanding of life and purpose and calling is the senior pastors. Among 60% are consistently biblical. The, the, minor, the minority of the other four pastoral segments hold the biblical worldview in this area of, of life, purpose, and calling. 48% of children's and youth pastors, 41% of associate pastors, 36% of teaching pastors, and 27% of executive pastors. 
A minority of all Christian pastors thinks and acts biblically in each of the other seven categories of worldview measurement. I don't know if you understand what I just said. There's only one category that it's over 57%. That's life, purpose, and calling. They have a biblical worldview. In all of the other seven categories, they don't even meet 50%. What are the other seven categories that they were surveyed on? 47% have a biblical worldview regarding faith, I mean family, and the value of life. 47% have a biblical worldview when it comes to the family and the value of life. 44% concerning issues relating to God, creation, and history. 43% in relation to personal faith practices. 43% when it comes to matters of sin, salvation, and one's relationship with God. 40% pertaining to human character and human nature. And 40% when it comes to measures of lifestyle, personal behavior, and relationships. Lowest of all in, is a category that might have been expected to be the top of the list for pastors. And that's beliefs and behaviors relating to the Bible, to truth, and to morality. A mere 39% of all pa pastors hold a biblical worldview in this area. 39%. But he offered hope. You cannot fix something unless you know it's broken. Amen. It can seem like a hopeless situation. Read statistics like this from a survey and say, man, if the pastors in America don't even believe the Bible is the truth, they don't even believe that it's the source, it's the filter that we should look at the culture with versus letting the culture let us look at the Bible with its filter. That, if, if that's the case, then, man, we are so, there is a crisis. We've moved beyond a dangerous situation. So far from where God has called and commanded us to be this morning, this little glimpse into the foundational things is vital. To see where sin started and to see what, what Paul told Timothy it would be like in the end days and to get a real reality check of where we are as a people and a nation. To understand and, and live in light of the end of the age. We have to understand these first things, these foundational things. It was good, but sin broke it. And we looked at the beginning, comparing it to now. What was going on before sin happened? Perfect fellowship, perfect worship, service, perfect relationship, and perfect unity. The adversary, the devil, had influenced then and now has great power in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 tells us he's the prince in the power of the air. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us he's the God of this world. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we're told to be sober and to be alert because we have an adversary, the devil, who's just like a roaring lion. He's going about seeing whom he can devour. We have a culture, we have a country that's ensnared in idolatry. And that's not new. Israel was there, that way. Other countries have been that way and are that way now too. Man has struggled with idol worship from the beginning. Again, we've been given the word of God as a guide, a warning, a hope, truth. And this morning, starting this study, my prayer is that if you, first of all, are not a child of God, if you're here today and you just think that you're going to heaven, you're not 100% positive you're going to heaven, my prayer is you will not leave this place. But we're going to have an invitation here in a second. When we have that invitation, that you'll come forward and you'll grab me, Brother Jeffrey, if you're a lady, grab Rochelle, Kelly, 
some of the, one of these ladies here at the front. If you're a guy, grab one of these guys here at the front, Brother Ricky, and say, I'm one of those people. <laughs> He's talking about how bad it is in our nation, how bad it is in the world. I'm not positive I'm going to heaven if I, if I were to die today. Let us show you in God's word how you can know, not think, but know that you're going to heaven. If you don't, I want you to know that you're on the wrong side of this battle. If you leave this place unsure about your eternal destiny, if you leave this place without knowing that you've surrendered your life to Jesus and made him the Lord of your life, your, your Savior, if you leave here, I want you to know you're still on the wrong side of the battle. See, your only hope is to repent and surrender your life at once to, one who, to the one who loves you and died in your place and rose again the third day. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and you will not have eternal life without him. But secondly, my prayer is for the church is that you realize, that we realize that we've had a cultural shift that's very indicative of the end. America is not the tell-all. America's so bad, Jesus is coming back. America's not the tell-all. But I do believe that America is a good litmus test. A nation once heavily saturated in biblical worldview we could go back 50 years and these stats would blow your mind. Now essentially void of a, bi a biblical worldview, even in the church. Culture, the world, has now dominated the mindset and therefore the decisions of many professing Christians. When the world can say, your kid will play on this day or else. Your kid will have their graduation on this day. And we don't care if it interferes with anything of God. And professing believers bow instead of showing up at board meetings and council meetings and saying, we are Christians. This has been the day that we've worshipped God the entire time, and we will not do this. But we bow. Like a bully picking on a kid, the church, the kid, eventually cave, has been broken. No longer is it. No, we are followers of Jesus, not followers of the culture, not follower of the sport, not follower of the education. Not fo we are followers of Jesus. He is our Lord. He tells us what to do, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves. He tells us what to do, and that's what we do. And we tell the culture that because we are light and we are salt and we are different. His stuff will never be sacrificed on the altar of the world and its culture. No, it's even worse. It's even worse than that. The person, the pastor, who stands in a pulpit and says something like this is labeled uncaring, disconnected, and legalistic from the people who claim to be living sacrifices for Jesus Christ. We better look up, and we better wake up, church. I'm not satisfied with the culture continually squeezing the life out of the church. I'm not satisfied with, with, with the church just sitting idly by and allowing the status quo to be the status quo. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God we, we have resurrection power. We, we have 
the, the, the same Spirit of God that moved on the face of the waters. We have the same Spirit of God that, that, that used mighty men throughout all the ages that was with Daniel, that was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that raised up kings and used them, that, that spoke through the prophets and the, and, and, and the apostles. With the same Spirit is in us. We better, get, we, we better get serious and wake up because the days are upon us and it's nearing an end. And I'm not satisfied. I pray that you're not either. I want to challenge you this morning to pray for revival. We need to see revival in our homes. We need to see revival in our young people. We need to see revival, but it's got to happen in the church. It's got to happen in the home first. Let's stop compromising. Start living for the king. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have. God, as we start this study this morning about the end, we can pretend that it's not near. We can just continue to try to live our lives on this earth. And while you have given us responsibilities and we are to glorify you in everything, including our jobs, including our activities, our lives are not about the jobs and the activities. You tell us very clearly in your word that no matter where we are and who we are, we are your ambassadors. We are your representatives. Lord, I pray that a revival would spark in this church. I pray that parents would have a holy discontent for what is going on right now. I pray that we would see fathers and we would see mothers and we would see uh, husbands and, and wives surrender their life completely to you. Again, we pray for salvation for those who aren't saved. Lord, I want to ask for forgiveness, not just for myself, but for this church and for the church in America. God, we, we've allowed the culture to take a stranglehold. And Lord, this morning, I, I, I want to say we're sorry and repent, Lord. But God, I want to see something new. I want to see a revival happen. And I pray that you would just start that today. We'll praise you for what you do. I ask you to just be glorified in our response in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand as he sings, I want to invite you to come.